what I'm really looking at are what are the qualities and behaviors that make a really great coach. Okay. And what do coaches do to help their athletes perform at the highest levels? And what are some of the behaviors that maybe undermine the athlete's ability to do that? And so if I were to talk about some of the things that great coaches really do, um, one of those things is that they're really consistent in who they are and what they do and how they do it. So a really great coach is not somebody who comes out to the field or, or into the gym one day and behaves a certain way. And then the next day, you're not really sure how they're going to behave. They're going to behave in a consistent way from one day to the next, from the beginning, all the way until the end of the season. And if they don't feel like they can behave in that way, then they're probably not going to, going to show themselves to their athletes um, because they understand the importance of being very consistent in who they are and their behaviors in terms of how the athletes um, psychologically interpret that. And, and then the athlete knows how to behave around the coach. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has her PhD in sports psychology. She's a former Division I softball player, currently an associate professor at Sacramento State. And, and this is interestingly, notably, sports psychology coach for USA men's volleyball team since 2013. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrea Becker. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for spending some time. I, I know before we got going, you were talking about having to get off of another meeting um, and given all the things that you're involved in, I know your time is very precious. So I, I, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. Sure, no problem. So I wanna get into the nitty gritty a little bit quick here so we don't uh, waste too much of your time. Um, I was reading about, you did your di- dissertation on the psychology of coaching and um, thinking about it from that perspective, how, how does that, taking it from that role versus going from like player up, going from coach down, how, how does that change the dynamic or, or looking at um, the psychology of that whole team unit? From a player perspective versus from- uh... so, so like if you on the outside, so you on the outside, you're, you're studying coaches, right? Looking at like the psychology of coaching and like a coach and a team, they're, hopefully a cohesive unit working towards a goal, right? I think when, I guess, let me say, when I think about sports psychology, I'm thinking about like, as a player, as an individual, like how can I affect my own mentality? Whereas at least from my understanding, you're trying to think about, you know, the coach's role or how how the coach's psychology plays into it. You know, how does that change? Or like, what are you looking at? And how, how does that change? Um, your perspective on, I guess, the field or, or what you're looking at, if that makes sense. What I'm really looking at are what are the qualities and behaviors that make a really great coach? Okay. And what do coaches do to help their athletes perform at the highest levels? And what are some of the behaviors that 
maybe undermine the athlete's ability to do that. And so if I were to talk about some of the things that great coaches really do, um, one of those things is that they're really consistent in who they are and what they do and how they do it. So a really great coach is not somebody who comes out to the field or, or into the gym one day and behaves a certain way. And then the next day, you're not really sure how they're going to behave. They're going to behave in a consistent way from one day to the next, from the beginning all the way until the end of the season. And if they don't feel like they can behave in that way, then they're probably not going to, going to show themselves to their athletes um, because they understand the importance of being very consistent in who they are and their behaviors in terms of how the athletes um, psychologically interpret that. And, and then the athlete knows how to behave around the coach. So when coaches are consistent in who they are, it allows the athlete to be themselves and be consistent in who they are as well. So that's just scratching the surface. That would be one thing that I think really great coaches do to help their athletes perform at their best. The other thing is they're very clear in their expectations, not necessarily for outcomes. I think great coaches understand that while we strive for outcomes, we can't necessarily control outcomes, but what we can control is behaviors. So we can control whether we're giving 100% effort. We can control the way that we communicate with our teammates. We can control the way that we focus our attention during practice drills um, and whether we're doing mindful performance or mindless performance. And I think the higher the level that you go, the easier it is sometimes to get away with getting outcomes while also being mindless. If you think about in baseball, for example, um, if you're practicing and you're hitting balls off the tee, it's really easy to go over and put a ball on the tee and hit it off and put a ball on the tee and hit it off. But are you really engaged in mindful practice where you're focusing your attention on the ball and going through your pre-performance routine and then stepping into the tee as if you were actually hitting a ball in the game? And I think those types of things are doing those types of behaviors are the behaviors that great coaches really hold their athletes to that high standard of behavior. So the, the first thing I kind of think about when, you know, you're looking at coaches and their behaviors, I, I kind of wonder if, um, as you study coaches, is there any kind of, I, I don't know how else to break this out, but I'd saying like some kind of like Jungian archetype, like this, this kind this style of coach and that style, is it like that? Or is it really just a dispersion of individuals? It's really is a dispersion of individuals. It's just like the performing a free throw shot. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can make 90% of their free throws. Maybe I shouldn't say a lot, but really <laughs> great players can maybe make 90 to 95% of their free throws mm -hmm. doing a, a slightly different technique or mm -hmm. looking slightly different. And the same thing is true in coaching. There's probably no one right way to coach a team to be successful, but there are ways that maybe make that journey a little bit more enjoyable for the athletes. Mm -hmm. There are ways that you can achieve success and it could be really enjoyable and you can achieve su success and it may be really miserable. So, um, but when I talk about great coaching, I'm talking about not only helping your team be as successful as possible, but then when you speak with those athletes, they had an enjoyable experience while doing it. They really love to go to practice each day because the coach created an environment where um, it wasn't all misery. <laughs> um, so, you know, if we're just judging coaches on their outcomes, 
there are many different ways to do it. But if we're judging coaches on their outcomes, in addition to the experiences of their athletes, um, then maybe we're talking about some fundamental characteristics in terms of what they do, not necessarily personality qualities, because all coaches are going to, there's no two personalities on the 6.8 billion people on this planet that are exactly alike. Everybody's got variations in who they are. And so there's no cookie cutter personality that makes a great coach, but, you know, great coaches are, are very knowledgeable um, in their craft. They're very detail oriented. Um, they execute highly organized practices. Um, they understand themselves and how their own words and behaviors impact their athletes. And maybe we want to call that emotional intelligence. And so they're able to navigate their words and behaviors carefully in order to get the athletes to think or behave in certain ways that will help maximize their abilities to perform well. And so, um, I do think that there are those fundamental characteristics. You know, all coaches teach, but great coaches teach the details. You know, all coaches communicate, but great coaches communicate honestly and openly and um, and carefully. You know, and all coaches motivate, but some coaches motivate out of fear and some coaches motivate out of love. And so, you know, all coaches do a lot of the same task, but it's it's the way in which they do it and the way that they deliver it and their ability to do it in a way that really builds the player up and makes them feel like a worthy and valuable member of the team, but also builds their confidence and, and their competence at the sport. And they feel like they can actually do it and that their coach believes in them. And so um, there is no cookie cutter approach, but I would say that those are some fundamental qualities across the board that you see when you're examining coaches who are really great in their sport. Is that why, I guess, in your opinion, you know, you see it happens uh, more so in pro sports than college, although transfers happen in college, obviously, you, you know, a player comes to a new team and there's, there's a, a fitting in period, you know, cause it's a culture shift. Is, is that, that because, you know, they've had a coach and they have certain expectations and they come the new coach and there's, this kind of uneven ground, they're not sure what to expect. Is, is that why that happens? I think that's part of it. I think whenever you join a new team, there's going to be a period of time where you're developing your own knowledge of the culture that you're entering, just the systems of play that you're, you know, maybe this coach runs a whole different offensive and defensive system um, or, or has a whole different philosophical approach to the sport. I mean, you're in running. So, I mean, there are different philosophies on how to go mm -hmm. about a race plan and how you want to execute. And maybe that has to do with the individual who's running that race as well and what their, their strengths are. Maybe they're strong at closing. Maybe they're a good, you know, person who's very good at pacing or whatever that might be. Right. Um, so I think, you know, some athletes get to a new team and it's like a breath of fresh air and you see a whole different athlete. And some athletes take more time. And I really just think they're, it's, it's so individualized and it depends on the situation that they're entering and the situation that they came from and the personality of that athlete and, and so forth. So I think there are a lot of different factors that might play a role in when an athlete transfers to teams, what that experience might feel like, and then what that experience might look like from an outside observer's perspective. I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about... Um all great coaches uh, teach, 
or all good coaches teach, great coaches teach details. Um, and I think about the various coaches I've had over time. And then most recently, um, this is pretty cheesy and I don't know that you've watched this. There's this uh, show on Apple TV called Ted Lasso uh, about a coach that supposedly coached at Wichita State and then gets pulled to coach a, a Premier League soccer team. And he knows nothing about soccer. And his focus is on like basically teaching the athletes to be great individuals, not necessarily good soccer players, but great people. And eventually his assistant coach gets pissed at him because he's like, like, this is pro results do matter. So I wonder, you know, because you've been involved at various levels of sport, how much shift do you have in being more focused on those outcomes the higher you go? You know, where I think about the collegiate environment and think largely of outcomes do matter, but I, I think about the great coaches I've been involved with, you know, coaching character. And then I unfortunately didn't, didn't make it to the high, high echelons of my sport, but um, so it, it leaves a little bit of mystery to me, you know, how much is that, that character aspect taken down a notch and outcomes weighed higher as, as you go on. I think any team is, could be likened to like being in a large relationship and people are going to be happier and more productive individuals when they're in a healthy relationship than when they're in a dysfunctional relationship or when they're in an uncertain relationship. And just as human beings, I think that we oftentimes seek security. Um, we seek comfort. We seek those, we have basic needs and sometimes, and those are just examples, but we seek those basic needs to be met. If you're a coach who can understand the needs of your athletes, and some athletes really need to have a strong relationship with their coach in order to then feel comfortable to perform at their best, where they're not looking over their shoulder, worrying about what their coach is thinking, worrying about if they're going to get pulled out, worrying about if they're going to be judged or criticized. And some athletes don't need that relationship at all. They're fully confident in themselves and they go out and they do their job on the field or in the gym or wherever it is. And then and they don't need to have that relationship or that, that confirmation that their coach believes in them in order to perform well. Um, and so again, this is where coaching really is an art and figuring out the degree to which you need to develop those relationships is an important part of that art. <laughs> um, and with some athletes, they're gonna be more open to that and some are not, but I think by not focusing on establishing and nurturing relationships, it's really difficult then to have critical conversations, to understand athletes on deeper levels, to, to figure out the buttons that you need to push in order to really motivate that person to work their hardest. You know, there are so many different aspects um, of coaching that really require you to know that person at their very core, not just that they're a, a warm body that's out there and you're, you're controlling them or maneuvering them around and they're, they're doing what you want. We're human beings with emotional systems. And because of that, we all respond and behave in different ways. And so if a coach really wants to maximize an athlete's performance, it really is in their best interest to get to know those individuals, develop strong relationships. And then that way, when 
when you're losing or when something isn't going right, you still have the relationship as a foundation to fall back on. Um, and you can work from that and you can continue to influence them. If the relationship isn't there, there's no, if there's no trust and there's no respect, then and your team isn't winning, then why does that athlete want to listen to you as a coach? Why would they want to continue to implement your system if they don't believe in your system? And, and what would make them want to be loyal to you or care about you and your coaching if you haven't exhibited those same behaviors toward them? And so I absolutely 100%. I was just talking to a, a handful of national team, our USA national team coaches the other day about um, the cultures that they established within their teams. And all three of the coaches that I spoke with emphasized the importance of developing relationships and having strong relationships within your team, not just among team members, but among coaching staff members and then, and then staff and, and team members in order to, that's the foundation of success, <laughs> not focusing on outcomes. You can't control an outcome, but you can control all of the different qualities or behaviors that would give you the highest probabilities to achieve that outcome. And I think, I think they really understand the importance of, of those things in developing a successful team. So if you come to, into an environment and you see what I'll say is maybe a suboptimal approach to building relationships with that coach, building relationships with their athletes. Is that where you come in and, and, and you coach the coach or, or, or how does your role come into I'm, play? Yeah, I might. Um, there are some instances where I don't work with the team members at all. And I just work with the coaches. Um, and maybe I'm observing some of their interactions, observing their behaviors um, in practices, in games, um, and then really having dialogue about what that coach is experiencing, what they're seeing, what they're trying to implement, how those messages are coming across to their athletes. Are there more effective ways that they could be doing that? Um, how the athletes are responding to those messages, um, what the research says in terms of conveying those messages in a way that, that will you know, be better received and so forth. And so certainly some of the work I do is with the coaches themselves. Um, and some of the work is with the athletes themselves. And then sometimes it's about sitting down in a room with the coach and an athlete or a group of athletes and saying, here's what the coach, here's what I heard coach saying in the meeting, what did you hear? And the athlete says, and if, that, if that's congruent, then we're, we're in a good place. And if that's not what the athlete heard, maybe because of the tone or the way it was delivered, then we can reach then we can have a dialogue and reach some kind of a consensus so that they understand what is expected of them and, and what they can do to meet those, meet those expectations. So does that mean that there's no typical day for you? Everything's it's always, never. they're always approaching it differently. Never a typical day, which is really enjoyable um, and sometimes really challenging. Yeah. So, Sometimes you do get in, you have a challenging situation. And sometimes when you're in a relationship, right? Because it's a large relationship, there are miscommunications in that relationship. And you're the person that's trying to bridge that gap in the miscommunication. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be difficult at times, but I think that's what makes relationships interesting and fun is that it is a process. And 
we're developing as human beings when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to that process. Um, really just being open about making a mistake perhaps, mm -hmm. or sharing a vulnerability or sharing a fear or, um, you know, saying that something hurt your feelings. And I think that's really hard to do, particularly in the context of sport where we've been built up to be these strong and, and tough in human beings. And, mm -hmm. and you're asking me to be what I perceive as weak and, and not tough. And I don't want to do that, especially in front of my coach. Um, but I think if you have a coach who's on board and can also model some of those behaviors, that really makes the work a lot easier. So when you have coaches who are very open-minded and willing to be vulnerable themselves, and when somebody is vulnerable, like the last thing an athlete wants to do is go to their coach and say, I'm not feeling confident, <laughs> you know, and, and to have a coach who can understand what that's like to be in a sport and not feel confident because even your top athletes at all levels are going to have experiences or times where they don't feel confident. It's a fragile concept. Mm. You feel confident. You don't feel confident. You feel confident. Um, and so to know that you have a coach, if there's truly trust and you have a strong relationship, you should be able to share that. And rather than feeling like the judge or the coach would judge or criticize you on that feeling, um, they will help you to work through it and help you to come up with strategies for overcoming um, in, or even just performing in the face of lack of confidence. And sometimes we have to do that. Hey, you're not gonna feel confident all the time but here's what you can do. You can go out there and you can focus your attention. You have a choice. Let's choose to focus our attention here. Those thoughts aren't gonna stop. You're not gonna go out to the field or out to the, into the gym and, and clear your mind. That's just not gonna happen. We're always gonna have a constant stream of thinking, but we can choose to pay attention to those thoughts or we can choose to say, okay, I hear you. There you are. And I'm going to, now I'm gonna focus my attention on just seeing the ball. And I'm going to repeat in my mind over and over again, just see, just see, just see, because naturally if I'm, if I'm listening, if I'm, if I'm talking, then I'm probably not listening very well. So we can almost use our own internal voice to override that, that, that voice in the back of our yeah, head, that like subconscious, yeah, that subconscious voice that is telling us we're not good enough or don't make a mistake or you can't miss this or whatever it is. Um, so there are little strategies you can do to not stop it and not clear it because that's really difficult, mm -hmm. um, but to override it with your focus, with things that are tangible. Thoughts only exist in our minds, but seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, and all those types of things happen in our present moment. So it's about getting out of your thoughts and back into your senses and taking in sensory information. So talking, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching um, are all little sensory things that we can do to shift our attention away from the negative thinking. So we can't necessarily stop it. We can't necessarily change the fact that we don't feel great right now, but we can change our focus. That makes me think about, I, I think I think about Nick Saban when I think about this, although I, I think most great coaches probably have a similar kind of idea is focus on the process and just like, that's what we control, control, right? And that's basically what you're saying is like, you know, I can't control what they're doing. I can't control whether it's raining today. I, I can't control if 
um, you know, all these externalities. What I can control is that we're focusing on doing all the details right every time, as mm -hmm. you know, to the best of our ability. Okay. And then the kind of crossover of that into just, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. Just, you know, focusing on the process of life, right? Not, not everything is going to go your way. And so that crosses over into sport where it's like, maybe you had a bad day in, in your inclusion environment, you bombed your test or whatever, and that's on your mind. Well, focus on the process, both with studying or whatever it is and on the field. You know, I, I don't know that I have a question here, just mm -hmm. comments, I think. Sure. Um, but I think going back to um, talking about being, being open to making, uh, admitting that you're making mistakes or that you're not feeling confident with your coach, Mm -hmm. um, I think that kind of contradictory, but almost self-evident after you examine it, um, result of that situation is that it takes a lot of strength in and of itself to admit that you made a mistake and that you are vulnerable. It, and it's, at least in my opinion, a stronger position to do that than to simply hide it and pretend that it doesn't exist. But sure. It, but from that side where you don't want to admit it, it doesn't feel like that at the time. Right. Um, how, how do you get people across that bridge? I think you have to first have an environment where it's safe to cross that bridge. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of sport environments where athletes don't feel comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. They don't feel like they're in an environment where they can be vulnerable and share those those inner thoughts or those inner feelings that that might be holding them back from being their best and and I think it really is up to the head coach and the coaching staff or um, the manager whoever is the leader of that that team that culture to create an environment where they feel safe and enough to do that um, or the athlete if they don't they're in an environment where they don't feel safe enough to do that to be open enough to develop their own outlet outside of their sport so that they can um, self-reflect and maybe peel back some of the layers that, that hold them back. So having some external feedback and to process their experiences with somebody who's outside of their sport so that they can um, almost survive in an environment that maybe doesn't feel safe, um, perform well in spite of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit uh, mm -hmm. on you. I, I was kind of wondering, you know, since you, you played softball in college and then are involved with, you know, like USB men's volleyball, how, how do you make the crossover in sports personally? Or does it matter? I mean, is it, is it sports or sports and like we could stick you anywhere and, and you'll thrive. Um, you know, I think when we're talking about athletes and their experiences, there are many similarities across sports, particularly when you're working with athletes who are performing at the highest levels. There's, mm -hmm. they experience expectations, external pressures, judgment, social judgment in the in media formats. Um, they experience issues of confidence. Um, 
they could all, you know, work on developing strategies to improve their focus in, in pressure moments, particularly. So I think across the board, athletes experience many of the same thematic um, issues. Yeah. Um, but for me, transitioning from being a person who played softball at the collegiate level to somebody who ended up becoming an assistant coach at, um, at the collegiate level in a different sport, um, I would say that the first year that I got into volleyball, I watched hours and hours of video and really tried to learn the details of the sport from a coaching perspective. And I was just very fortunate that I was able to be around uh, some of the best coaches in the country and ask questions of them and ask about different systems of play and strategies and what each practice drill was for. What was, what's the purpose of the drill? What are we trying to accomplish? And so really coming from coming into the gym from a fresh perspective allowed me not to come in with in, a closed mind and ingrained philosophies about my beliefs about how the game should be played, but it was really about these are some of the best coaches in the country and some of them do it differently. So let me come from a place of questioning. Let me at, let learning coming from a place of, Hey, I really want to learn. Why does this coach implement it this way? And, and why do you implement it this way? What is the rationale behind that? So really learning the game. And I think that helped me bridge the gap sometimes between the coaches and the athletes because sometimes you're in a practice drill and as, athlete, as an athlete, you don't really know why you're doing the drill. <laughs> and so because of that, you're just going through the motions. And so some of that, some of my own questioning helped to make the drills more purposeful for the athletes because I was able to go over them and practice and say, hey, we're really doing this because we're trying to develop, you know, our ability to hit different shots. Mm -hmm. And so you keep going and you're hitting the same shot over and over again. And that's the shot that you're really good at, which is great because, you know, maybe 80% of the time you're going to use that, but there's going to be some moments where you're, you're going to need a different tool in your toolbox and here's the opportunity. So don't fear failure right now and don't fear making a mistake. Let's, let's try to develop this other shot so that you get to comfortable to use that as well as your, this shot that you're really good at. Um, and, and that's what the drill is for. It's okay to make mistakes right now. It's a practice drill and to be able to, to give purpose to some of the drills that maybe the athletes didn't, didn't, didn't see, mm -hmm. um, because they just take the orders and then they go do what the coach tells them to do. So, um, and that's just one example, but, um, I think really it gave me an opportunity to learn a sport from the ground up without any preconceived notions or philosophies about how I believed it should be coached or learned or executed and so forth. I, it, it reminds me, I wish I could remember. I, had, I know I've had another guest who kind of has a, a similar situation where they, they grew up in one sport and then they ended up coaching in another sport. And mm -hmm. I think they had very similar thoughts where it was like, since they had no idea what was going on to start with, not no idea, obviously, you know what volleyball is. Sure. Um, and probably even know the, the rules of the game, but just the intricacies of it, since they, they didn't grow up with it, didn't have all of that, it allowed them to come in. Oh, it was, oh, I forgot her name. She studies swimming um, at, in Australia, at Australia's um, like Olympic training center. Um, anyway, she's like, she came in and was like asking questions about why, like, why are they swimming like this? Why is the pacing like this? Why, you know, what, why are the athletes doing this? And 
was able to come in with, uh, a, I'll say a critical mind, but in, in a positive way, mm-hmm. because she wasn't inundated with, this is just how it's done for all of growing up so it's just interesting I I hear some similar kind of thoughts from you coming into that sport as an adult and then really making that deep dive um one of the things I I always think about um both on a personal level and and try to get to the bottom of uh maybe you're the right person to ask I try to think about where does motivation come from? What, like, what is motivation? Um, I know when I talk to my current coach about it, we talk about how like a coach can't light the fire motivation, but they can stoke it. You know, you can't make, if, if a player is not motivated, if they have no motivation, you can't create it, but you can grow it. Um, so I, I kind of like your thoughts on where does motivation come from? Um, are we wrong? Can you create motivation? Uh, you know, how, how does that play a role in kind of your world? Sure, sure. I mean, if we talk, if we talk about the formal definition of motivation, we're really talking about energy, where someone is directing their energy. Like motivation comes from the word to move, mm-hmm. and in order to move something, it needs energy, or else it's going to stay in one place, right? Right. So it's about where does that where do we direct our human energy? And then once we direct it toward that something, what is the intensity of the energy once we're in it? So like I played softball in college and I love softball. So I directed a ton of my energy toward anything softball. You know, I'm going to go watch a game. I'm going to go out and play catch. I'm going to go. And so I directed a lot of my energy towards softball, but then motivation is also once you're out there at practice and once you're out there doing the activity that you're motivated to do, what is the intensity of your energy or your effort once you're in it? And, you know, young people are motivated to play sports and the word play is is in the action of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And as adults and as coaches and as the people who influence the environment in which they play, we can either undermine that motivation or we can fuel it. And there are a lot of things that coaches do in youth sport, for example, that undermine young people's motivation, even parents that undermine young people's motivation to do the sport once they're in it. <laughs> Um, having long practices, over-focusing on outcomes, um, asking them why they did something. I mean, they did it because at the time they thought they were doing good. You know, I think understanding that all young people who are participating in sport want to do well. (laughs) Nobody tried to perform poorly. Right. Nobody went out to the field and made a decision that, hey, I'm really going to strike out right now so that I can head back to the dugout and then hear my parents in the crowd saying, why did you swing at that pitch? Told you not to swing at high pitches or, you know, I mean, so many these, it just breaks my heart to see these young kids in youth sport where so much is the, of the focus is on the outcome of what they're doing when it should be about the joy of playing, because that's what we're doing. We're playing a sport. And, and I think as adults, we're squeezing the joy out of what young people are doing in sport. And these are just some examples, obviously, but um, if we want to motivate young people, um, we want to focus on loving learning, loving the feeling of improving at something when you really practice it. 
um, loving going out and, and running around and jumping and, and appreciating that your body is capable of doing those things because there are so many people out there who don't have those capabilities. And so really putting a sense of gratitude and fun and appreciation and, um, and for those opportunities that people get to be able to play, truly play and letting them play. Um, it isn't about the score. You know, so many parents and, and get wrapped up in, in the score or their own child statistics or getting a college scholarship. And we're really gonna focus on, we're gonna give you a strength coach and a sports psychologist and a nutritionist and a pitching coach and all, and then you're gonna get a scholarship. And, and, and you know what, they might get a scholarship but then they're gonna to get to a, you know, a university like a UCLA, gosh, one of the finest academic institutions in the country. And they actually get to play a sport there, but then they're gonna to come to a person like me during their sophomore year. And the first question I'm gonna ask them is, why do you play? And their answer is going to be usually 90%, I don't know. And the reason why they don't know is because they played their entire life to get a college scholarship and they got it last year. Mm-hmm. they achieved the outcome that was pumped into them their entire life. It wasn't about the outcome. Wasn't really loving your sport and becoming the best that you're capable of becoming. And, and every day when you have an opportunity to go out there and learn, you're learning and it feels good to, to fail at something over and over and over again. And then when you finally get it and it finally clicks, it's like, wow, you earned something. you you develop confidence from those multiple failures and then finally overcoming that obstacle that you work so hard at overcoming. And you realize like, wow, I can fail a lot of times and I could do this, but that's not how they feel. They feel like, well, I got the scholarship, but I don't love the sport. I hate the pressure that comes with it. I don't like the attention I get in the media. I just wanna hide out and go do my thing. It's, we're putting too much pressure and too many external expectations on something that's supposed to be played mm. as a game. And I think that's really hard on young people. We're creating, I'm seeing more and more, I would say over the last 10 years, I'm seeing more and more young people come to me and they tell me they have the yips. Mm. Um, they're telling me I have the yips, I need to talk to you and I don't know where it came from. And in really what they're sharing with me is high levels of anxiety, mm-hmm. high levels of dysfunctional perfectionism, high levels of, um, deep care about what other people think and whether they're pleasing other people and whether they're meeting external expectations. And those things aren't self-developed. Those things are nurtured. And so as adults and as sport coaches and as teachers and as people who influence the lives of young people, we really need to get back to the fundamental qualities that make sport a special experience, that they can learn how to how to have good character and to win and lose with class and to fail over and over again, but continue to work hard to overcome those failures. And then, and then sit in the feeling of what it feels like when you've been successful after failure, you know, and, and really move away from those outcomes. Nobody's going to care what your batting average was in the fourth grade. 
So why do we put so much emphasis on it now? Nobody's going to care your rankings. Your rankings don't make who you are as a human being. Your behaviors and the way you treat other people, the way you carry yourself is what makes a good, you know, good human being, not how you performed in your sport, you know, and it, even some athletes come to me and they don't want to play anymore, but their entire relationship with their parents in their, in their, through their eyes is based on the interactions they have through their sport. If I don't play anymore, oh my gosh, what will I talk to my dad about? That's where love, the love that they, that I feel and they had for me came through my sport outcomes. And that's just to even think about that. That's how we're making a young person versus many young person feel is just, it's heartbreaking to me, you know? Um, and so I think there are a lot of things that we could do that would motivate and even more important, inspire young people to want to give full effort because that's what feels good. Inspire people to take pride in the behaviors that they exhibit in practices and rather than punish them for mistakes and outcomes that are really outside of their control. Andrea, we're starting to wind down on time. You've already kind of touched on this, but I, each season of the show, I have a single question I ask every single guest. Um, and my, my question for this year, which you kind of already answered, I think, but for, for a more succinct version, I'd like to know your opinion on how you stay motivated after you fail to reach a goal. Having the deep belief that if you stick with it, that someday you can achieve that that outcome, um, and that if you if you do fall short, then you feel good about having given your one hundred percent best. And I think at the end of the day, I say this to my students all the time. At the end of the day, what I try to achieve in a day is to be the best person I'm capable of being. That doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean I'm not going to accidentally use the wrong tone. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect in my behaviors. It doesn't mean that I'm going to have the best lecture every time I head into the classroom. But when I look in the mirror at night, did I try my best? Did I try to treat people with kindness and respect? Were my intentions good? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I should feel good about that. I'm not always going to get the outcome. So when that young person doesn't get the outcome that they want, but they look in the mirror, did they try their best? Then they could still feel good about themselves. And I think that's really what it's about in the end. Like so many young people struggle with not feeling good enough. Mm -hmm. What does that really mean? And who's ever really truly good enough? We could spend our lifetimes becoming better and better and better at something. And you know what we can still do? Become better. Mm -hmm. There's never any, you never, a reach a final destination. You can, there's always one little thing you could have done better. So really what is good enough? And to me, I just really define good enough is that the intention of having good intentions and, and doing the best that you are possibly capable of doing. And if you did that, then you should feel good enough about yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and really to me, that's the message that I try to instill in young people. Great answer. <laughs> uh andrea i know we talked about uh you're you're not big on social just like i'm not is there anywhere people can kind of see what you're up to uh, check on 
you know, kind of what, what you're doing, what you're doing with sure, teams, sure. that kind of stuff? Um, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, Andrea J. Becker. Um, and, you know, I, I don't put tweets out a lot, but I pay attention. And yeah, if people are interested in sports psychology or reaching out to me, then um, they can find my email address on the Cal State University of Sacramento website. And, um, you know, following the USA men's volleyball team is another way to kind of keep up with some of the stuff I'm doing. So between those things, um, they'll probably see little snippets here and there. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Sure. Great to chat.